Well, let's, let's get going, because what we're talking about today, we've been in this series, The New Man. And uh, last week we got onto a subject talking about fruit, which happened to be what Janet was talking about this morning. And we're going to go there again, but I want to recap just a little bit. Because the new man we know is created in the image of Christ, by Christ, that that old man died with Jesus on the cross, and the new man was resurrected with Jesus when he was resurrected. We are created new in him, and that's the key. So how does that happen? It's belief in him. It's really simple, because that is what transitioned into the idea of what faith is, and more importantly, what faith is not. Because we're not saved by faith, we're saved by grace. Faith is nothing more than belief. Belief in what? Belief in Him. And we see this about the word faith. In Hebrews 11.1 1, it says this, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. In other words, it is, it is the realization of the things of God. Do you see God? No. Do you see His attributes? Yes, you do. It's all around you. We just had a man die named Stephen Hawking, who is no longer an atheist. Because now he's, he knows the truth. He denied it for years. He stood up there. He, he came up with every possible scenario in which that this world came to be outside of the hand of God. And now he knows the truth. It's sad. Unless something miraculous happened right moments before he died, it's, it's sad. It breaks my heart, to be honest with you. Brilliant mind, but heart was a long ways from God. They suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness, and that's what it says. So when we come to God, what do we have to do? We come to Him in faith, in belief in Him. And we know by looking at Hebrews eleven six, 6, which I don't have up there, just so you know. Oh, you got it. Oh, look. Okay, go ahead. This guy's all over it. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So, can we please God outside of belief in Him? No, we can't. What does that tell us? That all the things that we do are absolutely irrelevant to the things that, that have to do with God. Our good works are important, but not to come to God, but because we have come to God. You see, our works do not make us right with God. Jesus makes us right with God. We become right with God when we believe in Him, put our faith and our hope and our trust in Him, knowing that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. We first come to Him believing that He is who He says He is. When Jesus said, I am, when God said to Moses, tell them that I am sent you, He existed. He is the pre-existent one. He has always been. So we approach Him then, and then because of that, we know, because we approach God in faith, that He rewards us, because we diligently seek after Him. What are those rewards? Those are the consequences of our faith in Him. It's kind of like we've talked about this, and we're going to be on this fruit thing for a little bit, but what makes an apple tree produce fruit? It's an apple tree. That's what it does. I was having this conversation with somebody the other day. Now, I did not grow up on a farm, and I think many of you have realized that. When I first moved here, I was talking farming stuff with Stan, and I'm like, I have no idea. He might as well have been speaking a foreign language. I had no idea what any of that stuff meant. I've, I've come a long ways. But like an apple tree produces apples, I assumed that a milk cow produced milk, like because it's a milk cow. I did not realize that it had to have a calf in order to do that. So I just assumed these things were born making milk. That's what they did. And once somebody explained to me the process, I kind of I understood it. So when we come to God, that fruit is produced in our lives as a result of us being hooked up to the root that is Jesus. Not by works, but to works. Look at James 2. But someone will say, 
You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God? Well, you do well. Even the demons believe that and they tremble. But do you want to know, oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? How do we show the world our faith? How do people see the belief that we profess? It's by the things we do. It's not just the words we say. How many of you guys know somebody who says one thing, claims one thing, but lives a lifestyle contrary to what they profess? I'm surely not the only one. You see people all the time, they, they make statements. It's, it's no different than when Jesus is talking about the Good Samaritan, right? And how people had gone after the guy and then gone away from him and all of that. All in an effort, and this guy picks him up. And what, what made the difference? He picked him up, he took him, he had him doctored, he, he paid for his, his care. There was a difference between his response to the scenario and every other person's response to the scenario because this man wasn't just doing good works, this man was fulfilling what God would do, where he picks us up where we are lifeless and gives us life. The Bible talks about how to just say to somebody when we see their need that they're like, oh, I'm sorry that you're cold and I'm sorry that you're hungry. Be warmed and filled and go about your way. Without doing anything when we have the capabilities of doing it is not of God. See, your, your works do not match your profession of faith. And I've said this for years. Somebody asks me all the time, when, usually at, at a funeral, like, how do we know that somebody really got to heaven? There's only one thing that we can tell from on this earth, and this is not foolproof. It's based off what we see, the fruit in their lives, the response to the things of God. Did they produce fruit? Were they becoming more and more like Christ? It's the only way we can really look, because we don't know their heart. But the one thing that I do know for sure is that when somebody gives their life to Christ, that they begin to see, you begin to see a change in them. When they truly give their heart to Christ, a lot of people claim to, but when they truly give their heart to Christ, they become more in tune with the things of God. They begin to act more like God. They begin to care more about their neighbor. Now their interest becomes lesser, and the interest of others becomes greater. It's kind of like having children. You know, when they're young, it's all about them, right? All about them. They don't care what anybody else is doing. And then as they mature, we start to see them maybe start thinking about their siblings a little bit more. Right? They don't care at first. Listen, if there's one cookie, then they're getting the cookie. They're not sharing the cookie. They're getting it. As they get a little older, they might split it in half. Might. Okay? And I'm not saying how old they They might be in their 20s before they get there, okay? So I'm not saying there's a, an age range, but let's just say. And there's other times where suddenly they say, well, you go ahead and have it, you know? What are we seeing? A maturing going on. And we see the things of God enacted in our lives. But how do we get there? What makes one a mature believer over a, an immature, a young believer? Well, we read this last week. We'll look at it again. Hebrews 5, verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. For he is a babe, but solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. How did they get to that point? By using it. The reason of use. Jesus said that I have food that you don't know. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. You guys, remember that? We talked about this last week. His food, what he was fed with, was action, doing the will of God. 
What should your food be? It should be the same thing. How can you ever become mature if you never test your senses and exercise them? A child will never learn to walk if his mom carries him everywhere. Right? Eventually, you got to put him down. you got to let him fall. It's kind of like a, a bird kicking the babes out of the nest, right? They kick him out. Hey, you're going to fly, you're going to crash. But you ain't staying here. Now, I know some of you said that to your teenagers, right? Listen, you ain't staying in my house. You, you go out there on your own. Good luck to you. Wish you a lot of luck, but uh, get out, right? 18 years old, you've gone to you. It's gone. It's over. Right? At some point, we've got to stand on our own. We get to that point, but it's becoming a maturing process. And then last week, we looked at Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 4 and Luke chapter 8. I want to look at this one more time because I want to go through this one more time to pick up on where we're going today. In Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 4, it says this, And when a great multitude had gathered, and they had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. A sower went out to sow the seed, and he sowed some, and some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on a rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away, because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up and yielded a crop a hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then he, the disciples asked him, What does this parable mean? And he said, To you has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables, that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, for who believe for a while, and in time of temptation, fall away. Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity." But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it, and they bear fruit. Now, remember, we went through this last week. We've got the seed, and then we got the birds. And we've got four types of soil. And the thing is, is we've got to look at this and say, okay, what is it? Well, soil number one was the wayside, right? The way, it was the first one there. The second one was the stony soil. The third one was the thorny soil, and the last one was the good. Okay? And as I told you last week, we got to sit here and define our terms. So the seed tells us that that is the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Faith for what? Faith for salvation. That's what Hebrews is talking about. That faith is talking about the nation of Israel. That how can they hear unless someone speaks? So, so without hearing that word, they can't go. But what was the birds? It's the devil. It's Satan. It's whatever. And this is what I remember the first time I read this about six or seven years ago, and it jumped off the page at me, is that the devil comes and steals that word from their hearts, lest they should believe and become saved. Now, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I can usually, when I'm sitting down and talking with somebody, see where they are in one of these soils because we are going to line up. But I cannot tell you how many times this has happened to me. It is incredibly frustrating. It can sometimes happen in a moment. Sometimes it's a day or two later. They leave thinking, man, I get it. I get what you're saying. I understand. And then the next day it's like out the window, like nothing ever happened. I have a family member. I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had with that it seems like, okay, I think it's about to click. I think this is it. And then something happens. What's happening? The devil comes 
and he takes that seed from their heart because he doesn't want anybody to be saved. He doesn't want us to walk with God. But then it isolates these two. Secondly, the stony and the thorny. Because they believe and become saved. They receive the word with joy. But in times of temptation, in times of trouble, in times of whatever is going on, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the pleasures of this life, makes them produce no fruit. You notice it doesn't say that the birds came and attacked them. Right? Am I the only one that noticed that? You notice also that it doesn't say the birds came and attacked these guys. Why do you think that is? Because that word's already sunk in. See, here it's sitting up on top. And the birds can come pick it up easy. Here they'd have to dig for it. Why? It's sunk into their heart. Now, because of the distractions of life, these guys produce nothing. They produce no fruit. No fruit is given by them for the kingdom. But these guys down here, not only hear it, not only does it grow, not only uh, does, do they share, but it produces some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. That means that some people will do more than others, but all will do something. And the reality of it is, guys, is that we all want to be here. And sometimes we are. But the truth is, we also fall into these two a lot. It amazes me. When that, that you see people have been walking with the Lord a long time, but the things of God are minor. It's kind of like secondary. I had a guy one time, okay, he was a Nebraska fan, so don't hold that against him, okay? Now, we know that all Nebraska fans are born again. That's just how it works, okay? It's natural. They're all going to heaven automatically, okay? They ask Scott Frost into their heart. Things are good, okay? That was a joke. Stay with me here, okay? But this guy, good church-going man, the only Bible verse this man could quote was John 3.16, okay? Like, without even just knowing the reference, he couldn't, he couldn't quote anything else. But you know what he could quote? The running back stats for the last 30 years for the Nebraska running backs. He knew what year they played, what number they wore, how many yards they had in the season, how many touchdowns they scored, all of that. And I'm like, good Lord, man. Like, if you put just a little bit of that energy to the things of God, what would you be? But we all get distracted. What are things that distract us? Our jobs, our businesses, our family, our friends. I had a, a, a couple at the, at the last church that I came from. Their adult children were not walking with the Lord. Now, I think when the kids were young, they weren't necessarily Christians, but, but things like that. And so when they would come home to visit, and she called me up one day, and she said, I'm just at my wit's end because I keep sharing them with them the things of God, but it's like it's not sinking in. But here's what this, this, this couple would do. Their adult children would come home with the grandkids and stuff like that. The entire world stopped. Everything revolved around them. So they weren't being an example because what would happen is Sundays would roll around, they'd blow off church because the kids wanted to go boating or go do something when they would come to visit. And I'm like, set an example for them. Let them see how important this is to you. Like, Yes, I mean, not that you can't ever miss church, don't misunderstand me, but it's like, it, they would come for two or three weeks, and it was like, the whole, they'd go to work, and they'd come home, and then it was, the whole kids were their world, and it was, it was this thing, and I'm like, how can you show them when you basically call everything off every time they come to visit? And so she's like, well, I guess that kind of makes sense, and guess what she started doing? When they came back, she said, hey, I'll be back in a couple hours. I mean, church was two hours, you know, so I'll be back in a couple hours. We're going to church. And they did. And eventually they got some of the grandkids to come with them. 
And now the kids come with them. Now, I don't know where they are in their walk with the Lord, but now they're going with them. Because it's, wasn't, it's not an option for them to go do anything else because they own the boat. That's how that works. So, again, what are we talking about? These things become distractions. Now, a lot of times we like to call them idols. Those aren't idols. They're distractions. What is an idol? Something you bow down and worship. If you're not bowing down and worshiping football, it is not an idol. But it most certainly isn't a distraction. In this world, in the American culture, what are we told to do? We've got to go to school to get a good education. And we've got to get a good education so we can get a good job. And we get a good job because we hope to climb the corporate ladder so we can make more and more and more and more and more and more. Thus saith the Lord. What did we leave out of that equation? God. Right? It's in our nature. We are always striving for more. We often fall. Obviously, this is telling us that 50% of people are going to fall in somewhere in this range. We all should strive for this. It takes discipline. We've got to read our Bibles, go out to pray, we've got to spend time with God, we've got to go to church, we've got to do those different things. But we all will end up falling in different categories of this. And see, why that's important is understanding that this new man was made to produce fruit. You've got to understand where you are. So, to transition to where we're going with this. You guys all understand these soils. You guys can see that it's clear in the word. Once you break that down, you can see that we're all going to fall into one of these categories. Sometimes it's more, one, more than one category. And sometimes we get here for a week and then we're back here for a week and you know, we're on this roller coaster. But we see what it is. But there's a word that's used in the church today that we've got to understand. Because in order to get where we're going, we've got to understand the things of God. And there's no question about it that we all would say, at least, that we want to be good soil. I want to be good soil. I want to do what God tells me to do. But in order to do that, I've got to be equipped. What is the word that we use for equipping in the church today? I know you know it. Anointed. Now, this is a word I'm sure you've heard before. We throw this word at everything. Everything. We throw, we'll talk about the music. Boy, that music was anointed today. We'll talk about things that are anointed, people are anointing. Boy, the anointing is not strong on you today. We'll talk about the service. Did you feel the anointing fall? All of that. The question is, is that what that means? You see, we need to understand one thing, that we are anointed, but what are we anointed with? How did we get there? What do we do with it? So what I want to show you guys today, as we talk about this new man, this new man was created in the image of Christ, and we are anointed, but let's start with Jesus himself, because he was anointed. So, Isaiah 61.1 says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Who said this? Here it was Isaiah. Who said this after that? Jesus did, right? He got up. It's in the book of Luke. He gets up and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. They say that it fell upon him. What does anointing mean? And then you see in Acts 10, 36, it says, The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. The word you know, which was proclaimed through all Judea and began in Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So Jesus was anointed by whom? By God. What was he anointed with? The Holy Spirit and power, right? 
So we see this. Now, the concept of anointing is something we've got to understand. Because whatever it is in the Old Testament, it should follow suit into the New. It's not like new concepts just appear out of thin air. God is consistent. So these things, they, they, they were done all throughout time. So what Jesus was anointed with, are we anointed with? Well, let's look at this. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God in Him are yes and in Him, amen. To the glory of God through us, now He who established us with you in Christ has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now, so in Him, all what? The promises of God when we are in Him, are always yes, and they're always amen, right? Amen, so be it. Let it be done. That's what amen means. It's the finale. It's like, this is it. So, He who established us, which is the Father in Christ, has done what? He's anointed us. But what does that mean? How are we anointed? What are we anointed with? You see, we've got to understand these concepts. So, in order to do this, to be consistent in the Word of God, we need to go back to the Old Testament. And I want to show you this. Today, I want you to look at this as, as an example going forward because you're going to see something uh, here and you're going to watch a pattern develop. In Exodus chapter 28, verse 40, it says, For Aaron's son you shall make tunics, and you shall make sashes for them, and you shall make hats for them for glory and beauty. So you shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him. You shall anoint them, consecrate them, and sanctify them that they may minister to me as priests. So this is God talking to Moses. What was to be anointed? The clothes. Right? Why are we anointing stuff? What does stuff matter? To anoint something, what they would do is they would take oil, typically olive oil. It would have some, some uh, fragrance in there. And they would pour it over the top of this stuff or on a person, as you're going to see here momentarily. But what was the point of it? Why does this stuff have to be anointed with oil? Okay, well, let's go on. Exodus 29, starting in verse 6. You shall put the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban, and you shall take the anointing oil, pour it on his head, and anoint him. Then you shall bring his son and put tunics on them, and you shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and put the hats on them. The priesthood shall be theirs for perpetual statute, so you shall consecrate Aaron and his sons. Okay, so now we're taking the hat and we're putting it on and we're anointing him with oil. So they're pouring it on his head and guess what it's going to do? It's going to run all the way down. Doesn't that sound fun? But why? Why is this happening? Does this not seem weird to anybody else? Like, do we just accept this? Oh, that's just what they used to do. I mean, they're dumping oil on their heads. Listen. I will gladly grab a bottle of Crisco and dump it on your head if you want to experience this. But let's admit it, it's weird, right? Is that fair? Well, we all agree, like, this is odd. Why are they doing this? Well, look at Exodus 29, verse 21. And you should take some of the blood that is on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments and his sons and on the garment of his sons with him. And he and his garments shall be hallowed and his sons uh, and his sons and his sons' garments with him. So now we've added blood into the mixture. So we're sprinkling blood and the oil on them. Wouldn't you sign up for this job? Like if there was a sign-up sheet, say in the back room, and say, hey, we're going to dump a little oil on your head and sprinkle you with blood. Who wants in? Nobody's signing up, right? But what is going on? Exodus 29, 29. 
And the holy garments of Aaron shall be his sons after him to be anointed in them and to be consecrated in them. Again, the anointing, the oils being poured upon them. All the clothing had to be anointed. All the people had to be anointed. What on earth for? Well, let's look at Exodus 29, starting in verse 35. Thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons, according to all that I have commanded you. Seven days you shall consecrate them, and you shall offer a bull every day as a sin offering for atonement. You shall cleanse the altar when you make atonement for it, and you shall anoint it and sanctify it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and sanctify it. The altar shall be most holy. Whatever touched the altar must be holy. Now to understand this and what we're seeing here, they're out of the Exodus, the tabernacle's existing. God is giving Moses direction on how to do this. And what did he say? We need to consecrate everything. We need to anoint the altar. It needs to be cleansed. And the people who touch it need to be cleansed. Because whatever touches it must be holy. Okay? So they had to make atonement for the altar, an inanimate object. Now think about this, guys. You see, what is the blood? The blood of the animal was the atoning sacrifice that covered over the sin. You see how you had to sacrifice a bull every single day, right, for seven days. So that blood would atone for those sins, just like the blood of Christ. When we receive Jesus, we receive that work that he did and that blood that was poured out for us washes us clean. When they went through the Passover, remember when we've talked about this, that they had to kill the lamb. They had to eat the lamb. But those two things were not enough. What was the most important part of it? Is they had to apply the blood of the lamb to the doorpost. Because when that death angel came through, he did not look to see if there was a dead carcass in the corner over there. And he did not look to see if they were feasting on lamb. He looked for the blood. Because with the blood, they could not be touched. And that uh, angel would pass over them. You see, it's the blood of the Lamb that makes us right. We have to apply it in our lives today. But this anointing oil, what is oil in the Old Testament? It is a picture of what? The Holy Spirit. You see, these guys were being consecrated and anointed to do a task. What was that task? From Aaron came the high priest. The high priest was the one that went in every year on the Day of Atonement, made sacrifice for himself, made sacrifice for the nation of Israel, and it, it would cleanse everything. They would become ceremonially pure for the things of God. And so he had that right to do that. So he was set apart from the rest of the camp. So you had a nation set apart. Now you have a sect of people inside of that nation sanctified and anointed to do a task. You guys following me so far? You see, it was the pouring on of the oil that anointed them, that set them apart from somebody else. We see this as priests. You see this with regular priests, because for sake of time, I'm not going to go through all of this um, scripture by scripture, because I think some of you guys have, have a pretty good idea. But they would also do this to the priests, that they would anoint them with oil, and then they would go into uh, to the holy place. Now, we see this with the, the priests. We also see it with kings. In 1 Samuel 9, verse 15, it says, Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, Therefore about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel. That
Philistines, for I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. Remember, the cry of the Israelites is they were in a theocracy and they didn't want to be. They want to be run by God. They want to be like every other nation and have a king. And God said, listen, you really don't want to do that because he's going to take your land. He's going to tax you. Your sons are going to work for him. You don't want to do this. Just follow me. But they wanted to be like everybody else, have a king that went out before them in battle. And so he said, all right, this is what you want. This is what you get. And so Saul is the one that's chosen. And what does it say? He's going to anoint him commander over Israel. In chapter 9, verse 27. It says, as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And he went on, but you stand here a while that I may announce to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? So what happened? The oil was poured out over him. He was now anointed as king of Israel. What happened? God did this, setting him apart as the king over the nation. He now has a responsibility of the kingdom of God. You guys following me? Okay, now let's look at verse 2. When you have departed from me today, you will find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin of Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found. And now your father has ceased caring about the donkeys and worrying about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you should go on forward from there and come to the terebinth tree of Tabor. There are three men going up to the God of Bethel will meet you. One carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they shall, will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall receive from their hands. After that, you shall come to the hill of God, where the Philistine garrison is. And it will happen. When you have come there to a city, that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from a high place with a string instrument, a tambourine, a flute, and a harp with them. And they will be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you. And you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And it, let it be when these signs come to you that you do this occasion demands for God is with you. You should go down before me to Gilgal and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and to make sacrifice of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. What happens as a result of the anointing? He set apart his king. Now the spirit of the Lord going to come upon him. You'll notice that every single time. Every time you go in the Old Testament, when somebody is anointed for a position, you'll see the Spirit of the Lord come upon them. You see this with prophets, that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon them. Now, we know the story about Saul. Saul screws up, right? Saul started off pretty okay, didn't last long. He screws up. He's going to lose his kingship. And because of that, God is going to appoint another king. Now, this is the king that, that God had chosen. The people chose Saul. God chose David. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, Verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. Anointing is setting apart. You guys following this pattern? It's setting apart for what? For a purpose. For what God has called us to do. Let's jump down to verse 10. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons before, pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes. For he, so he sent and brought him in. And now he was ruddy and with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. 
Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So what happened? God had chosen somebody else. And so in order to fulfill what God had called him to do, the prophet had to anoint him with oil. Now, if we would continue reading it, you would see the Spirit of the Lord leaves Saul and comes upon David. That's a pattern that you see, guys. When they are anointed as king or anointed as priest or anointed as a prophet, that anointing is poured out upon them. But it was always for a purpose. The things of God in the temple had to be anointed, but it was for a purpose. Because that was the way in which God would atone for the sins is through the sacrifice. You see, the anointing is not something that you feel. It is the setting apart for a use, for a purpose. It's when that oil is poured upon you. Now we saw before when we read out 1 Corinthians that God has anointed us, right? We saw that. We know that Jesus was anointed. It says with the Holy Spirit and with power. And we see that God has anointed us. But what has He anointed us with? Well, let's look at 1 John chapter 2. I'm almost done. Verse 18. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come by which you know that it is the last hour. And I just want to make one quick statement here. Remember, Antichrist does not mean against Christ. It means pseudo-Christ. And it's like a Messiah. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. And you know all things. Okay, so we know that we have an anointing, because this can be applied to us. These are believers in Christ. We have an anointing, and it comes from the Holy One. And the result of that is, is we know all things. Now watch verse 26. But these things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you. And you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in Him. I'm going to read that again. I'm going to read it slowly because this should be bringing a picture of something to your mind. The anointing which we received from Him, when did we receive it? When we're born again. It abides where? It's inside us. Notice it's not on us. It's inside us. And you don't need for anyone to teach you. Why would we not need that? But the same anointing teaches you. What? The anointing teaches us? It's concerning all things. It's true. It's not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. What does this sound like? This sounds like the Holy Spirit. That's inside of us. Now think about that. The tabernacle and the temple were always anointed for service. The workers that were inside of the temple were anointed for service. The prophets and the kings, both serving God, were anointed for service. But we're anointed, but what are we anointed with? The anointing is not something you feel. The anointing here is telling us what it is. It is the Holy Spirit. Can you feel the presence of God in the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. But the anointing doesn't fall. The Spirit of God falls. The anointing is the setting apart from service because it says in Ezekiel that you'll have no one need to teach you because I've written my laws in your heart. Neighbor won't need to teach neighbor because the Holy Spirit is in us. And what does he do? He leads us into all truth. 
You guys, the anointing, we are anointed with the Holy Spirit, which means now we are set apart. Therefore, because of that, because now we've been called holy, set apart by God, but for what? For a purpose, for good works. You guys see what I'm saying? You see, we talk about, oh, you're such an anointed musician. You might be a gifted musician, a gift that God has given you that you can use it. But we are not anointed to specific positions. We are anointed by God with the Holy Spirit to carry out His task, to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And how will people see that gospel in us? Through our works. You guys see this coming full circle. You see, we talk about the anointing as if it lifts, it comes down, and all of that. We would be saying the same thing as if the Holy Spirit left us, if that's the case. Or that we need the Holy Spirit to just fall, but then sometimes He does and sometimes He doesn't. The Holy Spirit is inside of us. Those baptized in the Spirit, yes, He's upon us, anointed with power. But guys, this anointing is not this like transcendental thing where we don't know where it's going to go. This is the Holy Spirit. You see, we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. It is inside of us. He is the one leading us to all truth. He is the one that is guiding us. And because of that, we will bear fruit worthy of the name that we profess. Everybody with me? You guys follow what I'm saying? Like It's so important we get our terms right. Because without this... We have no high priest. Without that, we have no prophets. Without that, we have no kings. You see, it was the Holy Spirit being poured upon them symbolically. All these things were written for our admonition so that we could learn from them. It was a picture of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon them like you and I have had upon us. We are now set aside as kings and priests for the kingdom of God. So it's true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. We are anointed to do the work of God. And through this anointing, we will produce fruit. Now, how are we going to do that? What fruit are we going to produce? It's up to us. You see, it's the choices that we make. We can choose to follow God into all things. We can also choose not to. I had another parent one time, they had a teenager who was getting a little bit rebellious. And um, they were concerned because they weren't really interested in going to church and things like that. Now, these parents would take their son out of church all summer long because he was on a traveling baseball team. And so they would be gone for basically from about mid-May until they'd come back about mid-August. And they did not understand why their son had no, didn't really care much about God, only cared about baseball. Every weekend they were gone. What, where, where are our priorities? It was baseball. And they wondered why. And I don't have to wonder why. I know. You see, we produce fruit in our lives by the things that we do. We see that in the soils, how we receive that word and what we do with it. But we are anointed and set apart by God for that purpose. So we're not saved by works. We are saved to works. Anointed by God to fulfill the call that God has put on our lives, which is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. You guys see how this is all coming full circle. It should be all coming together. Because, again, this is nothing special. Am I anointed? Yes. Are you anointed? Yes. Do I have a different anointing? No. I have the same anointing. I have a different calling. We're all anointed with the same Holy Spirit. It's nothing different. The problem is, is today's church world, is we like to put things and thinking, well, because he's the pastor that he does this, or he's a prophet, so he's got a closeness with God, and he's more anointed. I can't do nothing. That's nonsense. We're all anointed by God. Read the book of Acts. You read about deacons who are nothing. They were just simply people that were serving God that are acting in, on behalf of the apostles doing supernatural things and leading people to Christ. 
The deacons were just happened to be seven guys that were chosen. Could have been anybody. You see that all through, throughout time as you watch people who are set apart by God to be used for Him and then do it. We like to make excuses. Well, I'm just not gifted there. I'm not anointed enough. We've got to start using the right terms, guys. We are able to. The fruit that we bear is a matter of the choices that we make. We're going to make good choices. We're going to make bad choices. But the reality is, guys, is we are in control of those things because the devil's not coming to take that word out of our heart anymore. God's anointed us and set us apart. What are we going to do with it? Are we going to produce fruit or are we not? I hope we are. I'm not talking about the fruit of the Spirit. I'm talking about leading people to Christ. Our world should be so centered on the things of God that nothing else matters. And the problem is that we have in our culture today is everything else matters and we just want to mix a little Jesus into it. So, guys, I encourage you. Go back and study this for yourself. Look at what the anointing is. You need to understand that you are anointed by God for what He's called us here to do.